0: No, I'm one of the reasons that don't read because it's the same thing uh, if you're training somebody for a marathon and they've never done one before. They're always talking about, what about hitting the wall at 22 miles or 23 miles? But that's somebody else's experience. Yeah. And and to me, that if somebody's run the marathon and they're struggling then at 12 or 14 miles, mentally it's going to draw them down thinking... This is not supposed to be hard until 23 miles, and I'm struggling now.
1: That, my friend, was Noel Hanna. And this is the Inspiration Runners Podcast. Hey, everyone. Hope you're all well. My name is Robbie Marsh, and I'm your host. So welcome to the podcast. Firstly, I'd like to apologise to Noel as I recorded this episode at the start of the year on his return from K2 and we're only getting to release this now. Since then, Noel has successfully climbed to his 10th summit of Everest, which I find absolutely mind-blowing. We really should be celebrating Noel's achievement and giving the recognition that he deserves. And there, in fact, lies the problem as Noel is the only person I know who normalises 8,000 metre summits. He can be a hard person to interview as what's normal to him is an amazing journey of courage, mental strength and endurance to others. If you haven't already, why not check out episode 51 where Noel talks about his experience of competing in the 135 mile bad water along with reaching the summit of K2 the Savage Mountain. Before we start, I'd just like to give a shout out to Sports, who have just announced a new date for the Seven Sisters Skyline race in Donegal, which is a 55k mountainous race which takes part in Dunlouis on the 21st of May next year. I believe that they have a shortened 28k distance and I think he did throw out their... 100k distance as well. If this interests you, why not check out XL Sports? I'll put a link in the show notes. The race director, union Quinn, has also put up a nice prize fund of 5,000 euros, so it'll be interesting to see how many elite runners join the party, which is fast becoming Ireland's best mountain race. You'll be glad to hear that our podcast listeners can gain 10% off by using the code INSPIRE10 during your registration online. It's going to be an epic race. We will be running a competition on the Inspiration Runners podcast Facebook page very soon for free entry, so keep an eye out for that. Not to delay you any further, it's with great pleasure I give you Noel Hannah. I was going to say we'll get down and dirty there, but that, that's a diff- <laughs> that was a different Aww. episode altogether. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so K two, the Savage Mountain, as they call it. Like, so tell me what? Tell me one thing. Like, why is the winter? such a difficult time to be on k2 rather because it's normally around august time isn't it that people will try and attempt k2
0: yeah well it's the same as any mountains it's the same as going to the kerngorms or scottish highlands most people go in the summertime because the weather is good and you have longer days whereas k2 then the winter time obviously the higher the mountain the worse the the weather conditions are so that's the same, really. All big eight thousand meter peaks, or any peaks, even you go to Mont Blanc, it's easier there to do it in July or August than it would be in January, February.
1: How, how long was your days?
0: Well, it was bright probably at seven, and then five o'clock in the evening, the, the the sun would have went down, getting dark.
1: Yeah, one thing that really interests me, Noel, is like that conversation, that seed. Right back at that point, you know, when some like who, who planted that seed? Who came up with that idea? Who who approached who?
0: Well, there was There's always been winter. Well, not always, but maybe half a dozen or eight different winter expeditions on K two. Uh, but there was only maybe three or four individuals, along with a small amount of Sherpas. But uh, the Nepali company this year decided that they would try and go because it's the last of the 8,000 metre peaks never to be summoned in
1: winter. Okay.
0: So I knew all the sharpers that was going and I knew three or four other climbers that had climbed with before that were going to be on the mountain on the same expedition so that was one of the reasons why I decided I would go and give it a go.
1: How how did that conversation go at home?
0: No, there's no problem. No, Lynn Lynn knows that I'd talked about it before and and Lynn would just say, Yes, go ahead. There's if it makes you happy and that's what you wanna do. There's no such yeah. thing as no, you can't go and do that and things like that.
1: It's quite normal in the uh, Hannah's household though, isn't it? I'm gonna go and climb one of the eight thousands.
0: Yes, it's we've done it in a no way <laughs> myself and Lynn in oh, no, September two thousand and nineteen Done manislu and the both of us done it without oxygen which was nice it's our first eight thousand meter peak without using oxygen
1: yeah how do you like winter's normally after quite a heavy summer um winter's normally a good time to recoup isn't it like and get your body rested and ready to go for the season ahead so how did you how did you bridge that preparation then coming into k2 well
0: probably getting into k2 was the least prepared I've ever been for any mountain because obviously during the summer it was all complete lockdown. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't been in any mountains at all from, it was actually a year, January past. I had been down in Chile climbing and obviously for a full year I wasn't doing any climbing. The only summit I was on was in Sleep Donnard a couple of times whenever (laughs) I was home and that was the highest I'd been uh, for a year.
1: That's quite unbelievable. You must've been chomping at the bit then.
0: Yeah, it was nice to get away and obviously you're saying about the winter time it's rest rest and relax, but the likes of December and January, that's the time for South America. So I'm usually down there and the likes of Kilimanjaro you can do it anytime. time.
1: Like how long does it take like pulling together a plan um to take on an expedition like that?
0: It's just you could. I really only I talked about it, but I only des- decided at the beginning of December because obviously I was waiting to see what the COVID restrictions were and things like that. But whenever you've got all the gear and you don't need to buy anything and everything's there, you could just do it at the drop of a hat. And the fitness, you're always. I'm always training all the time anyway, so it doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah. Like, how hard is it to get on to an expedition like that in K2? It's
0: not hard at all. If you've got the money to, to go, yeah. it's easy enough. But you have to have experience. You know, uh, to me, anybody that would go on a, an expedition that hadn't done an expedition before would be stupid.
1: There's a lot of experience like is isn't there? There's a lot of things can happen when you're in an altitude, you know, and you're tired and fatigued, like, in your decision-making. Like, your team must be very important. You must have been... Like that must be a big decision on who's going and you know who's going to be part of your team.
0: Well, most of it, it was just individuals from all around different countries. But it's really, most of the time is spent at base camp. So it's really important that you've got a good crew that you're going to be spending time with at base camp. Because whenever you're climbing on the mountain, you're climbing as an individual.
1: So did you fly out from South Africa then?
0: Yes, I flew from South Africa till Islamabad via Doha.
1: How far is it to trek in then to K2? K2,
0: you spend one, two, three, six nights in a tent uh, going up the glacier before you get to base camp.
1: What sort of height is base camp? It's like five... Base
0: camp, yep. Yeah, base camp is just under 5,000 metres.
1: Yeah, so how are you feeling when you arrive at base camp? Have you plenty of energy or...
0: Yes, it, it's nice because... Whenever you get to base camp, you can get your own tent set up and that's you for five, six weeks. Whereas tracking in, you're tracking, setting up the tent every night. Next morning, scrape it on, you're up and it's freezing and you're having to pack everything and then go again. Whereas once you get to base camp, it's a lot easier than it is tracking in.
1: It's quite a trek in though, isn't it? How far is that?
0: I think it's about 85 kilometers, the trek in through the glacier.
1: I was actually reading a book there on K2. Um, I can't even remember what it's called. You know, but, you know, in the 1920s, they had a lot longer to trek in and maybe about 300 kilometer trek into there. Yeah. Um, how do you find... I was going to ask a real stupid question there, like, but how it's changed since then to now? Or even how how's it changed since when, since you've started... Till now, have you seen much change? I suppose equipment is a big thing.
0: The equipment, most of the stuff's just the same. Uh, obviously, warmer clothing and things like that. But you've got the same climbing equipment. Boots and things are getting lighter and things like that. But then you're paying bigger money for the lighter boots and the things like that, which is the problem.
1: The kit is expensive, isn't it?
0: It like isn't it? It is, I uh, because like the new... 8000 meter boots are they're 800 pound for a new pair of boots for 8000 meter peaks
1: so do you have do you have any issues with your boots
0: no well whenever i went there my i had two barrels of equipment came from Kathmandu because obviously i would leave barrels and climbing gear and my boots and all in Kathmandu every year because of another set of boots at home and do Mars and climb and stuff at home, but I like to use the stuff that I'm used with on an eight thousand meter pick. Whenever they come over, obviously my boots had been damp and dried out and they shrunk. But there was another person there, Arnold, and he wasn't. He was only staying at base camp, so I was able to use his boots for the climb. If I hadn't have been able to use his, I would have got a a pair over and then brought into base camp.
1: So what, what is it like on base camp in the first week? Because it, it's bound to change. As, like, it, obviously, there's climatization going on the first week and getting used to that altitude. But what, what are you doing when you're at base camp?
0: Well, really, you're not really doing anything for about the first two or three days, just settling in. And then you're going for short walks up the glacier. Uh, and obviously, the big thing is looking at the weather. The the main thing is, if you've got after three or four days at base camp, if there's a weather window, will you have to take advantage of that and and try and make it up to camp one uh, and then back down again?
1: So when you say camp one, obviously there's four camps, is there?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And um, when you say camp one, like, is there are, are are there tents set up there on those?
0: No, you take those all up with you along right, with okay. the shoulders. So and same as you have to carry your sleeping bag up all your mats and things like that there so the first time up to camp one it's quite a heavy rucksack
1: yeah so it might must be quite an ordeal then you know when you see a bit of a weather weather window coming obviously there's that excitement and you're getting ready and you get that kit together and away you go like um but things happen as you say it's a window it's a very quick window isn't it
0: yeah well you're looking at the weather forecast like you're really looking eight days in advance, but it's really only five—no way, five days—that you can really look at the weather forecast that you think it's going to hold. So you're basically planning four or five days ahead when you're going to leave to go up the mountain.
1: So is that how big the window needs to be? You think about four or five days?
0: No, well, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, it's four or five days. No way, you're looking at the weather forecast. Yeah. Say you're sitting on a Friday. You're looking at the weather forecast, and maybe the following Wednesday the weather is good, and maybe the following Thursday's good, and the following Friday's good. So your plan then would be to leave that Wednesday morning and then come back down off the mountain on the Friday.
1: Right. Okay. So it can be as quick as that. Like. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm still sort of fixated on base camp and what that sort of living conditions. You were there quite a long time, weren't you?
0: Yeah, you're spending probably, out of the 40-odd days, you're probably spending at least 30 at base camp.
1: Like, do you... I was going to use the word bored there. Like, do you get bored there? Like, there's a lot of time. There's, like, a lot... Of... Like, if you were sitting in the bus shelter waiting for the bus for three weeks, you know, it's a long time.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is a long time, but you go going now to, obviously, the breakfast, and then you're probably sitting at breakfast for maybe two or three hours just sitting chatting and then lunch is the same. And then the evening time you go in and you're maybe playing cards from four four o'clock and you get your tea then at half six and then you're there at sort of a half eight and then that's lights out.
1: Sounds like you're at a holiday camp.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's
1: easy. (laughs) But um, at altitude though, there's a certain period of time, isn't there, that you sort of acclimatize. But after that you know your body starts to sort of fade away after a certain length of time at altitudes you know it starts to degenerate like being there for such a long period of time you must be getting tired and tired all the time uh,
0: well it's not too bad because whenever you're in around the 5000 meter mark it, it's sort of a bearable for the body but it's whenever you're like 5 4 or 5 6 or higher than the 5000 meter mark the body gets deteriorated a lot more, but the five thousand meter mark, it's not too bad. It's the same as like average base camps in round fifty three hundred, which is higher.
1: Okay, what sort of temperature were you dealing with at base camp?
0: Base camp, I was I never took the no way the temperatures because it yeah. doesn't really worry about me. But some of the ones were saying that uh, every night it was between minus twenty two and minus twenty five in the tents.
1: And you're cosy enough with the equipment you've got? Is it on the edge of just comfortable?
0: Well, your sleeping bag, most sleeping bags now, if you're using for winters, down for minus 40 or minus 50. Right, okay. So you're really just in your sleeping bag in like a silk liner or very, very lightweight uh, clothes. But it's the ice that forms inside the tent. It's just like icicles and snow falling on you whenever you move, or <laughs> things like that. Then you get up in the morning, and your toothpaste frozen solid, and your baby wipes is frozen solid, and it's everything like that. There, then, the problem.
1: And how how many people do you share a tent with?
0: At base camp, you've everybody has their own tent.
1: Okay, is that a preferred way then? You yeah, that?
0: yeah, all base all base camps, and, and all the mountains, you've got your own tent.
1: Okay, what about um? Like, cabin fever is bound to set in after a certain period of time.
0: Uh, it doesn't, uh, obviously, because I've been doing it probably now for so many times, it doesn't really bother me.
1: You're happy enough but just they- to sit out and just stay sort of focused on the weather. Yeah. So talk to me about your first attempt, then, or the first weather window that came across. Like, how do you get that news?
0: Well, I would get the weather forecast. Lynn would send me the weather forecasts on... Uh, InReach, it's a device that, it's a satellite device. So every day, Lynn would, every day and every evening, every, well, every morning at seven o'clock and every evening, Lynn would send me an updated weather forecast and we would get weather forecasts from the company we're climbing with. So you'll compare those. And then obviously the first weather window, we went up to Camp 1, spent three nights at Camp 1 and then come back down to base camp
1: why is that are you looking for another window after that window a progressive well, sort of window
0: you can only go so high at the one time and then come back down again No, you know you can't just go camp one yeah. camp two camp three camp four because your head would just be exploding so you can only go they reckon that you should never go any more than 600 800 meters in any one day whenever you're climbing this day
1: Okay, so that weather window came along and you guys moved up to Camp 1 and you sat it out for two or three days. Yeah. And and, um, is it disappointing news that comes through then to say that the weather window is closing?
0: No, well, that was just for acclimatisation. We knew that we were only going to go up for two or three days and then back down again because it was still early on the, the climb. It was only like the, I'm going to say, the seventh or eighth of... January.
1: Yeah, and how difficult is it to get to Camp 1?
0: Camp 1's difficult enough because you have to walk up the glacier and sometimes trying to find the route through the glacier can be a problem because there's bits falling off and even the first time whenever we were going up till Camp 1, a big chunk of ice, probably about four or 500 weight, just broke off as I was going past. And just whacked me in the hand, and uh, got a bit of bruising in the hand, and, and knocked me obviously down. Lucky enough, it didn't fall on top of me, or it would have been you would have been killed or broke a leg.
1: That's mental, leg, like, isn't it? Yeah. Um. And how how are you locked in with ropes at that? Or
0: no, you're not. You're just walking up the glacier without any ropes.
1: It's quite a big space, and you don't need ropes for that aspect. Of it. No. Because you're not pinning ropes the whole way up. Obviously, it's, I suppose it's when you get closer to the top. When you got more ridges to go through.
0: Well, there, there's fixed ropes from just above. There's a place called advanced Base Camp, which is where we would leave our crampons, and that's where you would put, you know where your climbing harness and things on. So really, from there right up, there's fixed ropes.
1: Yeah, that makes it sound easy, like doesn't it? I there's fixed ropes, so that's not an issue. Then <laughs> I just clip up and well, away it's, you go. It's,
0: it's a lot of, it, it's a lot easier than doing it without the ropes. Uh, the sharpest put the fixed ropes in, or different teams put the fixed ropes in.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of confidence with that as well, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and it's just the only all it most eight thousand meter peaks is all rope before uh, they go for summit.
1: How did you feel when that? Did it make a when that um ice fell? Did it make a like a sheer crack? And you sort of heard it coming down.
0: You didn't, you're just really walking past it, and the next thing, bang, it just breaks off, and it just knocked me to the ground, and lucky enough, there was a couple of hard people there with me, whenever we were going up, and it's just the luck of the draw, it's just wrong place, wrong time.
1: Yeah, like in wintertime, with it being so cold, I suppose, there's a, is there a less chance of an avalanche at that time of year, because K2 is quite, well, they don't call it the savage Mountain for no reason.
0: Yeah, there's there's not as much snow. It's more blue ice. Right. Okay.
1: Sort of. Is that and what make? Is that what makes it so difficult as well? Is that cold and that ice? Like it's a lot colder, obviously. So.
0: Yeah, it's like probably the a cold day going for summit on the summer in K2 could be minus thirty, minus forty, and a cold day going for summit. Well, you wouldn't be going, but a cold day on the summit could be minus seventy, minus eighty. Yeah, in that's the
1: that's absolutely mental, like, isn't it? Yeah. How many people were there all going up into, and ca- in your, well, in your ex- on the expedition, I suppose, because everybody was together.
0: There was people. Some people had left this the, the next day after we arrived in the base camp, so everybody was just doing their climatization at their own speed. Okay. So, I was sort of a. I paired up with another climber, Thomas. Uh, from Slovakia, and it, I'd known Thomas from before because he was in the summit of K2 the same time as me in 2018.
1: It's always comforting, I suppose, to have people like that along with you.
0: Yeah, it's nice, to, when it, because whenever you go up to Camp 1, you're sharing a tent with somebody or Camp 2 as well and Camp 3.
1: A bit of familiarity as well, I suppose. Yeah. So, after that happened to you, like, are you... Does it affect you in any way or form?
0: Uh, Not really. You sort of know that there's a possibility of that happening because whenever you're walking in the glacier, the ice all around you is just cracking 24-7, even onto your feet and everything. So it is. So it's just, it's falling all the time. No, Whenever we come back down from our summit push, back down to the glacier, we didn't even know the way because a lot of the, ice had all fallen and broken away so the the route had changed
1: you're making it sound a little bit like russian roulette it's not as bad as <laughs> that like is it
0: well it's 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 a gamble no you're walking and the ice around you could be 20 feet 30 feet high and yeah. it's just VAT breaks and you're walking past at the same time it's just bad luck
1: there's, there's no way of assessing it like is there it's so unpredictable no, it,
0: Yeah, and the glacier is moving all the time, so it's not as if there's any good time and bad time to go.
1: Yeah, and like a hard hat's not going to help you, like?
0: (laughs) No, it's it's just going to keep your head together, really.
1: So when you talked about the summit push, uh, talk to me about that, um, about that weather window coming and, you know, what what does that entail?
0: Well, we've been looking at the weather, weather, and about the 28th of January, we noticed that the 5th of, February, the winds was 10 kilometers an hour at the night and 20 kilometers an hour in the daytime on summit. Okay. So that was the only weather window that we had every other day was like 20, 30, 40, 50 kilometers an hour on the way up. So we decided, yes, that would mean that we would leave uh, base camp on the second go to till camp one, spend one night at camp one, go to camp two, spend one night at camp two, go to camp three, spend one night at camp three. And everybody was going to go to summit from camp four or from camp three because camp four was too dangerous uh, to put up tents. We all went to camp one everything was perfect. We all went to camp two. Everything wasn't really so perfect because the gas that you would use to heat the water really minus it says it's good down to minus 27 minus 35 but obviously in the tents it was colder than that so the gas wouldn't work so with problems with that and then you had to go to another tent and heat your gas cylinder up before you could get it to work so we were late leaving camp two everybody was late leaving camp two to go to camp three and to me Camp two to camp three is the hardest climbing day.
1: Because the the main difference, I suppose, between K two and Everest is like, is that gradient, isn't it? When you talk about between camp two and camp three, like it's a st- <laughs> they're stiff climbs. Like,
0: yeah, it's a lot of rock climbing too, no way vertical.
1: Yeah. And
0: obviously, everybody was hope we were all hoping to get into camp three in round two o'clock in the afternoon so that you'd be ready to go for summit at eight that night. But most people didn't get into between five and half six in the evening.
1: Right, it just coming into dark as well. like
0: Yeah, and, and I had got a new weather forecast before i left Camp too, and the weather window really was leaving us because the winds had all increased by at least 10 kilometres. So climbing during the night, it was going to be 20 kilometres an hour and on the summit, it was going to be 30 kilometres an hour. And to me, that's what you would climb in in summertime. Yeah. But to me, 30 kilometres an hour in the summit is is too much because the it's just with the wind chill because the 10 sharpers that made it on the 16th of January, they had 10 kilometres an hour and 15 kilometres an hour in the summit. And every one of them had frost injuries.
1: Right, okay. You see when they went for their summit then, because it obviously hit big news, um, that 10 Sherpas um, had reached the summit and it went to K2. Yeah. Is there any reason why the whole group didn't go at that time? The 10 Sherpas, those teams were on the mountain
0: probably 10 days, two right, weeks okay. before we were there. Okay. So they were acclimatized better. And... They had like a four-day weather window, which was good.
1: I suppose that's just the luck of the draw, isn't it? There is no reflection on that.
0: No, well, I I was very happy because every no other mountain 8,000-meter peak, even in summer or winter, has been claimed by a Sherpa. No way, they'd never got the recognition to be the first. And, And to me, I was really, really happy that, yes, the Sherpa is going to... Go down in history as the first ones to climb K two in winter.
1: Yeah, because they're so underestimated, aren't they? You know the amount of work, yeah. the amount of work and effort they put in. They just take it. let's just take for granted. Oh, Sherpa, Sherpa this, Sherpa yeah. that. Like, um, but they yeah. are phenomenal mountaineers.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people think that nothing will happen to them either. But even in our summit push, there was three or four Sherpas had frost injuries and couldn't continue above camp three because of the cold
1: and um, frost injuries does that usually mean amputation or not like people lose the ends of their fingers and toes and things like that not
0: really you maybe just get it all depends how bad it is but uh, if you sort of a control it or you don't go any higher whenever you have it and come down it's usually okay but whenever you go past the stage where you haven't checked your feet or you know your feet are numb and you still keep going on, that's whenever there's problems.
1: Do you think that you have a, I don't want to say a different level of awareness, um, but because you do a lot of guidance, et cetera, on the 8,000s, do you think that you are tuned in to a certain level of, I suppose, risk, which is slightly different? Because you're always looking after other people on the mountain. yeah so you know my feeling is you've got this real sense of awareness of what risks are there and i suppose everybody does anyway like but um do you find that because you're guiding people i know you weren't this time it was a so it was a solo attempt like but um do you find that helps you
0: yes it, it definitely does but then a lot of it's common sense too no way some people are happy enough to lose toes or lose fingers to make it to the summit then to me it's not i wouldn't know a it doesn't mean that much to me to get summit if i'm going to lose a finger or toe or anything like that the mountain's always going to be there and it doesn't that's what i said from day one before i went on the mountain that i'm not going to go for summit with the big possibility of losing fingers and toes
1: but that's what, that's what does happen to people, isn't it? You know, people, it's maybe a, a lifetime opportunity to be on an 8,000 meter, you know, a one-off chance or, you know, and the weather window become, can become so small and um, we've heard the term summit fever, you know, when wrong decisions can be made, Um, when there's a chance of making a successful summit and sometimes, especially when you've been up there a long time as well, it's not like you're, you know, you're, I don't know how cognitive you are, but especially as you go up to um, camp two and camp three, you know, it must become very challenging and the risk must just be increasing all the time from a decision point of view. You know, how you like, I know what it's like in a long distance run, you make stupid sort of mistakes you know after 30 40 miles like um that was a terrible um comparison by the way but (laughs) you know when you're up there and you're six thousand seven thousand meters um your brain can't be working a hundred percent like so making the right decisions must be difficult
0: uh touch food i've never had that problem yet but like there was a person that was Beside me in the tent at camp three, and he was complaining about his cold feet and the speed that he was on the mountain. There was no way he's going to make summit in the time. Nobody was ever going to make summit in the time and the weather conditions with the increasing winds. So you calculate out the time it's taking you that it normally would take you in the summertime and calculate the times that the weather is giving you now. And it's easy. It's it's easy to to work out. No way. If, if it takes you 12 hours to go from camp four till the summit in summertime, it's going to take you 15 hours minimum from camp three in the wintertime. And if you've only got a window of eight hours, no way. It's not rocket science. No, this is not going to happen. Yeah. But the man that was in the tent with me went out. To go for summit push come back two three hours later and i i could show you photographs of his toes whenever he come back to base camp and i was chatting <laughs> to his wife and she says that the tips has been taken off now
1: yeah that is crazy isn't it like but there was quite yeah. a lot of people suffered with bad frostbite wasn't there during this ex- expedition
0: yeah yeah and but I spoke- a lot of it a lot of it i think could have been avoidable
1: but how do you, like, <laughs> it's one thing I can't compare, compare with, but when you get that cold, like, how do you stop and prevent that, like, process from happening? Can you, is, I suppose that is the answer. You, you don't get yourself into that situation to begin with.
0: Yeah, if, you, you know, if your feet's getting cold and you're at Camp 2 and they're not heating up and they're getting a bad colour, well, you don't continue up to Camp 3 and continue on. Yeah. Because they're just going to get worse. It's not as if the is going to get warmer the higher you get. <laughs> yeah.
1: So what's it? What's it like climbing K two at night time?
0: Ah, uh, cold. It's just <laughs> all you're seeing is in front of you. ten okay. Can't fit with a head torch, and that's it. And you see the other lights in front of you.
1: And you're always able to navigate your way through that.
0: Yeah, because it, that's what I'm saying. It's fixed
1: ropes. And on a fixed ropes, then like it's um, like what speed are you moving across the ropes? Some
0: people are moving really slow. It all depends on how tired the person is. Uh, and like you, to climb from camp two to camp three, which is six hundred meters, could take you probably eight hours, ten eight to ten hours. Some of them has taken
1: jesus that is that is a slow progress late isn't it
0: yeah so you can imagine going from Donner car park to the top of Donner in 10 hours <laughs> yeah
1: you could do it on your hands and knees you think at that that speed yeah going into these sort of expeditions do you ever read any of the books on k2
0: no i'm one of the reasons that don't read because it's the same thing uh if you're training somebody for a marathon and they've never done one before they're always talking about what about hitting the wall at 22 miles or 23 miles but that's somebody else's experience yeah and and to me that if somebody's run the marathon and they're struggling then at 12 or 14 miles mentally it's going to draw them down thinking this is not supposed to be hard until 23 miles and i'm struggling
1: now because people only write right about the bad things that happen that's what interests people isn't yeah. it you know yeah. it's all a lot of negative not negative, but it's, there's real things that happen. But there's a lot of colourful things happen as well on the mountain. Um, yeah. And people don't find that as interesting as, you know, people yeah. falling off like 10,000 feet. Yeah, um, There is some real, s- for a better word, scary parts on K2, isn't there? Like you have the the shoulder up at Camp 4. Yeah. Um, what's that experience like?
0: The shoulder actually would be one of the easier parts. The The, the hard parts, really, in uh, K2 would be between Camp 2 and Camp 3, the Black Pyramid, and then you've got from Camp 4 to the summit, the bottleneck. Yeah. Those would be the two main difficult areas on K2. The shoulder actually is actually... If you get to the shoulder, you really count yourself that you're near on the summit.
1: Right, okay. And the bottleneck then, um, obviously, the name sort of explains a lot about it, Like, but when we're talking about how because everybody's feeling different levels, like one day you'll be feeling good, the next day you're feel, feeling bad, so everybody's up and down um, and people are moving slowly. Does it get... Like what does the bottleneck Look like does it get frustrating with it? It yes, it it's frustrating sometimes
0: because the bottleneck's just really it's not for well almost vertical ice, right? Uh, and you're obviously going with the jumar and crampons, and people are slipping. And to me, it's a lot easier to use a jumar and an ice axe in the other hand rather than struggling with just a jumar.
1: It sounds pretty raw and sort of caveman-ish. You know, you're (laughs) this vertical lump of ice and you're whacking in like the axe and and sort of climbing up this. I I think it was Lynn, your wife had posted up a picture. When it really hit home then, you know, oh, you're camp three or you're camp two. But there was this vertical sheet of ice. Yeah. And it was like, whoa, like that is real serious bit of climbing there. Yeah,
0: that's the traverse just below the bottleneck.
1: Do you enjoy that type of climbing?
0: I don't mind. It's just you know that it's part of the climb. It's the same as some of the other mountains. There's equally as steep a parts to climb too, but obviously not as much.
1: So when you were climbing up and you had to uh, make the decision then not to go for the summit, um, talk to me about that. Was that just the weather that was coming in and it was the wind was increasing all the time?
0: It's just the, the, the weather... It's common sense. No, you're sitting in the tent and you're looking at the weather forecast. And midnight, the weather is going to turn to 20 kilometers an hour. And by eight o'clock in the morning, it's going to be 30 kilometers an hour. And by eight o'clock in the morning, you're still not. You're still going to be climbing to the summit.
1: So you need to be a good I, mathematician, then. <laughs> no, just...
0: well, it, it, it's, that's what I'm saying. It, it, it's not rocket science, and and you have to know your own abilities too and the speed you're going. Uh, and it's, it's just worked out. And to me, the way the weather window had moved forward from the last day, well, there's nothing to say within the next 12 hours, it could have moved in another 12 hours. It, it could have been 30 kilometers an hour from midnight. So that would have been meaning that you're climbing in the dark in 30 kilometers an hour which is too much wind to be climbing
1: what, what were the biggest risks that you faced
0: biggest risk was obviously frostbite was the biggest with the wind chill mm. and on the summit day after being to the summit the winds were increasing like the 40 or 50 kilometers an hour that evening and that night so if something did go wrong you've no real Come back, you know, it'd be different yeah. if the weather had been good right through to the whole next night. But if you had a problem, you're just going to be frozen solid in no time.
1: It's one thing trying to get to the summit, but descending can be equally as hard, if not harder.
0: Yeah, it's like I followed one climber down from Camp 3. And, Po, oh, what should take you from Camp 3 to Camp 2, say two hours it probably was going to take him three to four hours you know he was just abseiling every rope and he shouldn't have been abseiling he should have been just wrapping it around his arm and walking down the way most of the sharpest do
1: do you, does everyone keep their opinions to themselves or do you try and help with some constructive sort of guidance
0: more or less you sort of keep it to yourself and bite your tongue or whenever you come up behind him you just ask can i pass now and you just go past and do your own thing
1: you were there for how many days? were You there for was it fifty six days?
0: No. Well, from a left, from a arrived at base camp to a left base camp was 30, 40, about forty five days.
1: Forty five days was is a long time on the mountain, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. Um. How How high is K two? Is eight eight thousand six hundred and eleven. Eleven meters. One one. Yeah. And it's the second biggest. Yeah, yeah. Um, to Everest. You've climbed Everest, is it nine times now you've climbed Everest? Yeah, yeah, nine times. Um, and your intention is to, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here though, but is to go back again in April?
0: Yeah, yeah, hoping, I'd always said I would love to do it ten times, so <laughs> hopefully,
1: hopefully. I was hoping to do Donard ten times. <laughs> oh, well
0: that's, the max track used to be up ten and a half times and that was the height of Donard and Altitude gain and altitude loss.
1: Coming down off the mountain then. Well, even before we get there, I suppose, we first heard about, is it Sergio? Was that his name? Sergio, yeah. Um, yeah. Had gone missing on the mountain. And he was he was quite low down, wasn't he? He was on base, he was on Camp 1.
0: Yes, Sergio fell between Advanced Base Camp and Camp 1. They were coming down from their first acclimatisation.
1: That was pretty early on, like wasn't it? That must, uh, like, how does that... I know we've got an experienced team of people on the mountains and people are, I'm not going to say used to that, but are able to react to that. Um, but we're all also human as well. How does that affect um, the expedition? I think, yes,
0: because I had climbed with Sergio at least two or three times. He actually summited K2 in 2018 as well. Right, And he we shared the same base camp in 2019 on Everest because he was climbing Lhotse, so I knew Sergei quite well, and we, me and Thomas, had come down a day early from acclimatization, and we were back at base camp, and we were just sitting in the dining tent, and the next thing, one of the other climbers just reported, somebody has fallen, somebody has fallen. They were coming down the ropes, and this body come tumbling past them. So obviously, Thomas is a medical person, so me and Thomas geared up and went up to where Advanced Base Camp was because the day before, me and Thomas had to bring a Sharper down that got hit in the head with a rock. Jeez. And he Thomas had to put about 10 stitches into his head. And like the, the wound was open big. You could see right down into the skull.
1: Jeez.
0: Uh, so we went up, but I sort of knew before we got to the place that from where the report was and where he was going to land, that it was just going to be a recovery rather than a rescue. Mm. And obviously, whenever we got there and looked at we knew that he was gone, he was dead.
1: Um, It must be pretty hard, that though. How does that affect your expedition? Do you just get... Obviously, that's in the back of your head, but you have to stay focused on the mountain to stay safe, obviously
0: yeah well, you always know that you're going on that mountain, say with twenty people, there's a the big chance that one or two of them is not coming back, mm-hmm. and that's you sort of we know that even in smaller mountains, the same thing can happen, but yes it's it's just hard at the time, and I think maybe for me coming from a police background, you used to go to accidents and Okay. explosions and shootings and things but then you didn't know most of those people that you were going to look at but it's just it's the same thing as whenever uh, we were going into ever 2019 the plane crash at Lukla I was one of the first on the scene and sort of half coordinated because the the army just didn't have a clue
1: yeah it must be hard like um yeah like K2 has been known uh, has a bit of a dark past, doesn't it? Was it in nineteen 19- when what date was that? Year was that nineteen ninety two was it? Um, two thousand and eight. Was it two thousand and eight? Re- oh, it yeah. was as recent as that. Yeah. Um it, eleven people died on K yeah, Two that think time.
0: So. Uh, yeah. Jared MacDonald was one of them from Ireland here.
1: You know, that's the danger, isn't it? There's always that danger in the background, like um, <sighs> I don't want to say this, like, but I'm gonna say, it, like, but there's that element of there's that saying: the closer you are to death, no, that, that's, that's I'm gonna to have to edit that out, like, but the closer you are to death, the more alive you feel.
0: Yeah, it's it's just the adrenaline. It's more it's adrenaline. No, it's the same as whenever you were in the the place that if you weren't shot at or a coffee jar wasn't thrown at your <laughs> Land Rover, it was a boring night. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: But there was 19 of yous that went into the mountain.
0: Uh, I think, yes, 18 or 19, yeah.
1: Uh, how many people walked out?
0: There was five
1: Was walked out. Yeah, like that, that, is, that shows you the risks and the dangers that's on K2. So yeah. out of that number, like there was quite a few people were sort of airlifted um, with frostbite. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there were actually five people um had lost their lives on K2. And it's going to be another one of those sort of black clouds on an 8,000 meter, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it sort of way overshadows the real sharpest summit, which is the problem. It's sort of way taken away from the celebrations that they should have been having.
1: Yeah, well, it does put a dampener on it, doesn't it? Like, There's a lot of people would sort of criticise mountaineers for attempting K2 in the winter. Um, but this has gone on for years and years and years. You know, there's a lot of criticism uh, in mountaineering in general, I suppose, on the 8,000 meters from certain people. There's criticizing. It's those people criticizing. It's going in the moons at the minute. You know, you get it everywhere. Um, yeah. But it is part of mountaineering, isn't it? it? It is the sport that it is. But it can be, there's obviously luck and bad luck. But you can make it... S- safe to go up these mountains as safe as you possibly can by controlling the things that are within your control
0: yeah you have to know read the wild forecast read the conditions on the mountain and read your own ability and know your own ability and and what you want out of it no way yes if you want to summit at all costs well then yes go ahead but there's the bigger chance that you're not going to be coming back down
1: the last three guys that disappeared that must have been a real shock to everybody on the camp
0: yeah it was and and i was talking to pablo like i went into pablo's tent uh the chilean guy whenever we arrived at camp three and pablo was his feet was really really cold and there was another girl in the tent Tamara, and her feet was cold so i had still my boots on so i was massaging pablo's toes and he was massaging Tamara's toes to try and warm them up but Pablo was going without oxygen and to me with the winds where they were going without oxygen to me it felt it wasn't really right because Mm. the cold temperatures the body's just going to deplete really really
1: quickly that's a danger like isn't it was it Pablo that was trying to do the 8000s without oxygen yeah yeah because a certain not cliches that's the wrong word like that you know if you're going in with certain goals like that it can bring a lot of risk on it like it can it can dilute your decision making
0: oh without a doubt and obviously if you've got big sponsors as well you're under a lot of pressure to perform
1: i was talking to lynn last week and we're going to release an episode um of right. that. like um it's <laughs> nothing bad by the way <laughs> um but I one thing that she made me laugh is um, what she cooked you on the way when you got back. She says she cooked you rice barani, or. <laughs> aye, aye,
0: Jesus. Like yeah.
1: you, you've been eating. Like, what type of things do you fuel on when you're when you're on the mountain? Because food's obviously a huge thing. You're bound to your body's bound to be burning a lot of calories at that altitude. Yeah, you're
0: burning a lot of calories, but then you've got a a full kitchen set up. No way with it the. the pakistani cooks and there's a cook from uh, nepal always comes and like you've plenty of food maybe not as nice of beef and things like that a lot of plaster and rice and and things like that there but it, it's it's what you expect on a mountain What
1: well, what would you ex- just for lynn who was going to listen to this what would you expect to get off a of mountain when you come <laughs> when you come off an 8,000 in the winter what would you look forward to
0: Oh, two large ribeyes with two fried eggs on them on a nice bed of rocket salad. <laughs> yeah,
1: not rice. Um, oh no, definitely not. How many 8,000 metres have you climbed? Not how many, I suppose. How many summits have you, have you reached? I
0: have nine,
1: to 11. 11. So Everest is your big focus then. Um, yeah. There can't be too many people from the UK or... Island who have summited Everest 10 times.
0: There's, I know, I know at least one other person has from the UK has summited maybe 13 times, 14 times, maybe.
1: But you must have a lot of experience in that, like, not a lot of experience, but I mean, you must have experienced a lot of things, you know, during that time and seen some, like, you must have had some, like, I'd be up in the morning, so we were up on the Binion there last Tuesday and we had a cloud inversion. And um, we actually camped on the top of a Binion and it was absolutely stunning. Um, I can only imagine what it must be like. You know, you must have seen some amazing things um when you're up on the eight thousands. Yeah,
0: some of the fuse the is spectacular. Probably two of my best has been one from the south side of Everest and one from the north side of Everest, that whenever you're going for summit that there's like a lightning storm a thunderstorm below you yeah. <laughs> and you're getting it away in the distance like the lightning just below the clouds which is just spectacular
1: um and how do you feel when you hit when you reach the summit like you know is it i don't want to. i keep on saying i don't want to say and then i say like but is it like a spiritual sort of sensation or like just out of this world or how do you feel when you reach the summit because like you're you're the highest person and when you hit the summit of everest you're the highest person in the world at that moment in time
0: yeah it's, it's nice but for me now it's seeing the joy in people's faces that's with you no way and then giving them the reality check look you're only halfway there we have to go now time to go down
1: is the biggest would you say that the biggest risk is on the descent
0: yes well there's more people usually dies from coming from summit and going to summit because they've put everything in to get the summit and it's harder more difficult coming down a rope than it is going up a rope
1: your body's bound to sort of you know you've yes you know you're you're hanging on to get to that summit like your your you're body yeah. and your mind um because i know what it's like in a long ultra r- run you know when you're holding on for 100k, your body, and then you cross the finish line, your body just sort of purges. Like, you know, there's nothing left. Like, you couldn't even walk, you couldn't run half a mile. Um, Yeah. But the reality of when you reach an 8,000 summit is you have to turn around and go down.
0: Yeah. You've only half the work done.
1: What's your thoughts on, there was a lot of press about Everest last year, you know, and the queues going up. Like, is that a new thing? Or is it just... You know, has it exploded over the last few years or is it just coming to light now that we've got so much social media and things like that?
0: I think, yes, it's coming to light. But whenever we went to Summit in 2009, obviously there was no climbs in 2020, but the queues, it was in 2019. Uh, Again, it's the weather window. We took the first weather window on the 15th, 16th or 14th, 15th and we had no queues at all. Right, like there was hardly anybody at all going for summit whenever we went for summit, and then normally in Everest, you've got a weather window of about eight or ten days, or six or eight days, so then people would always sort of spread out. But 2019, there was really only two days of a weather window on the 24th and the 25th, so if you've got 400 people there, they're going to say, well, there's going to be no more weather window because the monsoon. Obviously, the weather that you're watching after the 25th is bad weather right through maybe for another week. So, you're just going to then, everybody's wanting to go for summit.
1: It must be a very dangerous time then. Or, I don't know if dangerous is the right word because the the window's right, but frustrating is the the right word, obviously, because there's so many different levels of fitness i keep on using the wrong words but
0: it's fitness and people's capability but it's the same as i always say if you're going down the motorway and somebody's driving at 50 mile an hour and everybody behind them aren't comfortable to put their indicator on and go at 60 mile an hour there's going to be a queue Hmm. and it's the same as in ropes if people aren't comfortable with clipping out and passing somebody there's just going to be a queue of people. But if you come behind somebody and they're going too slow, just clip out and go past them. But the amount of people that maybe go to Everest that doesn't have that ability, that's why there's so many queues.
1: Do you see that as being a growing problem?
0: Yeah, it's a growing problem in all 8,000 metre peaks because there's so many more people that are climbing 8,000 metre peaks than did 10 years ago, 15 years ago.
1: Do you think it's going to the The rules and regulations around it will change, or because it's okay from us outside looking in. Like, but you know, like these countries don't have that much money, um, and they gain. Well, they gain a lot of money, obviously, from people being on the eight thousands. And um, do you see? There's obviously some sort of need for change, but do you, do you see that change happening?
0: Well, to me, I think it's bad. People talk about you should make it more, and more expensive, but. A lot of the people that are going to do Everest, should you put the permit says 10,000 now, but if you put the permit up to 50,000, a lot of these people have got the money that they can spend on going to Everest and don't have the knowledge and don't have the experience. Whereas climbers that are out climbing all the time are are the ones that are going to be disadvantaged because they can't afford uh, to do the peak.
1: Yeah, it's it's the wrong type of people. Not yep. all the time, but the wrong type of people have that type of purse. Do you know what I mean? Yep. These bucket lists, rich people. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that it's totally wrong, but your experience has to come before that, like, you know, because it's not just your own life that you're risking. I suppose yep. that that is one. Like you talked about yourself and Thomas, you know, having to go and recover the body and things like that. Um, it's 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 not all about you, is it, really, when you're on the mountain. You know, you, you're putting other people's lives at risk um if things go wrong for you
0: yeah definitely and it's the same thing that if people are coming down off the mountain and they're really really slow well you're going to have a queue of people as well and and it's just having the knowledge of no way sometimes people comes to an anchor and they're they're not capable of doing that so the sherpa has to do it for them so you're taking rather than taking 20 or 30 seconds to change an anchor could be taking them a minute or two minutes so all that there adds up whenever you're coming down the mountain and to get down quick no, you know it could be life or death to other people
1: what's have you any aspirations out there after the 10 everests
0: i would like to do everest try everest without oxygen at some stage so that could maybe be the 11th time if i get one this time
1: is there any is there any summits out there that you haven't climbed um that you would like to so i'm sure there's loads but is there any one specific one there's
0: none. No one that really jumps out. No, uh, it's not. I would like to do. If I had the money, I would like to do the fourteen-eight thousand meter peaks. But it doesn't really bother me if I do them or I don't do them.
1: Yeah, it's huge money, isn't it? Like it's. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's one thing that can fund that would be your book. No. When's it getting released?
0: But apparently, books, as I said. The truth doesn't sell. So I'm not one of these that puts a lot of bullshit in. No, I'm the one, I tell it the way it is that if the wind's 20 kilometers an hour and there's a foot of snow, I'm not going to come back and say the wind was 40 kilometers an hour and there was two and a half foot of snow. No way. And some. Yeah. the truth
1: doesn't sell. I, I think that you underestimate, though, that the stories that you have, you know, and the preparation and the things that have gone on and that you've heard certain things. So we we talked about that last time and about Bad Water, you know, and, yeah. you know, how people taint it to make it a bit more interesting. Yeah. And I think that's, that is actually put you off slightly from writing a really inspiring book Um. that's. Yeah people like myself would read. You know, you've been up Everest nine times. You've been up, K. you summited K2. You're in the winter expedition of K2. Like, there's a phenomenal story there. Like, whether you need a ghostwriter or somebody, you really need to get that pen out and stick that pen to paper and get that story out there. Because, like, the stories, like, even what has happened in that experience on K2, you know, like, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows either. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was a, it's it's quite tough and like what you're able to put your body through and like to be like a farmer's son and what you've done you know even listen I would read a book on bad water, let alone Everest and KT did
0: you see the uh, my good friend Marshall done the winter bad water there last week and went to the top of Mount Whitney it's the first time it's been done in winter
1: no it did not I didn't even know that was a thing
0: yeah Marshall Uldridge
1: and what's the temperature like in wintertime?
0: I don't know if it would be Mount Whitney. Uh, I don't know what, but maybe minus 15 would probably be, I would say, the limit. That
1: would be mad, like, wouldn't it, Like compared to what it's like during the race? Um, Absolutely. Is, um amazing. Listen, Noel, thanks very much. Anyway, so you're going up to Everest in April is the plan. Have you anything else planned for the yeah. rest of the year?
0: I would like, obviously... There's a possibility that Sajid Ali's son, that was on the mountain with him in K2, is organizing uh, possibly a search for the missing three in K2. And I said to Sajid and said to the Alpine Club of Pakistan that I would volunteer my services
1: um all right so Noel. anyway i wish you all the luck in for everest in april it was being it was great watching you. you had great support back at home and now with the social media all around yeah. the world really it's 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 a different thing isn't it you know yeah. and it's quite yeah. i have to say like it's strange like i was on eggshells for you coming back down which was strange <laughs> I've only met Noel yeah. twice, like, you know, but you do, you, you know how dangerous the mountain can, <laughs> you, you know how dangerous the mountain can be. And it was such yeah. a relief, you know, to hear um you back down safe. Yep. Um, but I do know, yep. you know, it's your trade and how much experience you've got and that, you know, you make, the, you always make the right decision. Like, so do you have any... Well, it's stupid even to say it, like you know, but you don't have any regrets, obviously, on the mountain. The right decisions were made at the right time.
0: Oh, without a doubt, and and that says it all. I'm, I'm at home and I have no black fingers or no black toes, whereas there's three people still on the mountain and a lot of people that's having problems with their toes and fingers now at home.
1: Anyway, so if I'm going up the mountain, I'm going to give you a shout. <laughs> no, come with yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Noel, appreciate your time this evening. Sorry I sort of um, was badgering you about the last week or two anyway. Um, Hopefully you've had a a bit of steak since you've come home.
0: Oh, without a doubt. And if anybody's listening, if they want to give me a shout about anything, there's no problem.
1: That's great. We'll put that out there as well. I'll put that in the post. Right, Noel, thank you. Cheers. Uh, It's great to be back on the road with the podcast. Just like to thank everyone for their patience starting up a new business was never gonna be easy but it's nice to finally get back to the land of the living. We have Gareth King up next week after an amazing 100k run during the Anglo-Celtic Plate back in August. Gareth, a local club runner who has really hit the world of ultra Running with a bang, taking home the national title by breaking Northern Ireland's previous 100k record by 22 minutes. That's just crazy shit right there and why I love the world of ultra Running so much. Anyway, It's good to be back. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.